Welcome to the teaching ministry of C4 Church. All right, all right. Good morning, C4 family. Uh, an early Merry Christmas to you. That's what we were saying today. We want to say hi to many of you online today. Glad that you're joining us this morning. If you're serving this morning and you're not in here, we want to really thank you. Let's give them a hand again. We always need to do this for the many serving us this morning. That's great. If you're joining us because uh, you're traveling or you're at shift work or you're at a cottage or you're not part of our community or in another part of the world, no matter who you are, where you're at, we're really glad you're joining us virtually this morning. If you got your Bible this morning, love you, of course, to turn to the book of John. We're going to be in chapter 4 today, and so you can navigate there or turn there physically or virtually. And by the way, if you do use Twitter, which we encourage here, uh, the hashtag this morning will be C4Believe. If you have no clue what I'm talking about and you think I just talked about drugs, talk to me later, I'll help you out. It's okay. All right. So uh, the book of John, chapter uh, 4. I was driving to church about two and a half weeks ago uh, along the lake. For you watching online who aren't from Toronto, uh, we live by one of the largest, um, well, lakes in the world, Lake Ontario, uh, freshwater lakes. And as I was driving on my way to church, I wasn't thinking about very much. I was just doing sort of the commute, my seven and a half minute commute. Sorry for all the rest of you. And uh, as I was going, uh, it was a gray day and a real strong wind had come off the lake. And as I was looking up, just sort of looking around, suddenly on the corner of my eye, something caught my attention. There was a large, beautiful kite in a very large tree. It was terribly tangled up in the tree, and every time the wind would push it, it would actually smash into the branches. And I watched this work of art get destroyed. My suspicion is that it wasn't something recent. It was something that had probably happened during the summer, and someone had, well, not done it so well and driven it into this tree or not controlled it right and it smashed in the tree and tangled in the tree and because of the foliage they, they couldn't get it out. As I drove by that I thought what a profound image. What a profound image actually for today's message and what a profound image for last week's message. That kite was designed to fly. That kite is beautiful, it's colorful and it's meant to go on in unbelievable places under wind. But now the very wind, the very thing that it was made to be in community with, you could say, is now the very thing damaging it as it's bondaged in the tree, as it's being banged in the tree. It wasn't made to be like this, but now it is this. And now you see its full destruction because the foliage, the leaves are now gone in winter. This is not what was supposed to happen to this kite. And actually, as we're about to find out today, this is not what was supposed to happen to the human race or to us. And yet, if there is any image that so brings home the destruction of religious understanding and lifestyles of wild living, it's this. The more religious you are, the more you will be tangled in a tree, and as wind comes, you will get more and more broken. The more wild living you participate in, you will end up in the same tree from the different side and you will be bashed more and more and you will become broken. Humanity was never meant to prove themselves to God by being diligent, nor were we meant to live what they say, licentious lives, living wild lives, because in both cases, both are about self-reliance and both bring death. Nicodemus last week, as we saw, a brilliant religious man, he missed it, and he was in the tree. But now, today, we go to the opposite extreme. This is week five in our series out of the Gospel of John, the Gospel written so we might believe. 
Last week's message and this week's message are two sides of one coin. Like I just shared, last week Jesus came and he spoke to good people, kind people, deeply religious people. Uh, The hardest people, like I said last week, to bring to Jesus. Those that find Jesus the most unreasonable tend to be the best people among us in society. Good, moral, kind, nice people, whether secular or deeply religious. They really find Jesus offensive and hard to meet. Because he comes and begins to reveal that what they think is significant and good is not. It does not give you access to God. It does not give you eternal life. Religious compulsion does not provide anything but putting you in a tree and putting you in bondage. It may be good for family. It may be good for society. But it does not save your soul. Like I said last week, one of the difficult things we face in the world, but especially here in the West, is the idea of scales. Most people believe in their heart of hearts that if there is a God, when they die, God's hands will turn into some form of scale. And on that great judgment day, he will weigh our good and bad. And almost everyone in their hearts thinks that the good will await the bad. But Christianity, Jesus comes and says, actually, there is no scale. It's interesting Jesus now chooses to move to the other side of the conversation, to those that are not deeply religious and socially involved. He now speaks to those who live fast and play hard and, like I said, die young and leave a good-looking corpse. Those who are living a life or now living with the results of an open, dark life filled with things filled with sexual conquests, filled with want of money and reputation or influence, or you fill in the blank. Jesus now comes to speak to those that are living openly divided lives, some of them religious, some of them not. But those who are religious, their words and their actions don't even connect. If this is you this morning, here or online, or if someone's coming to your mind right now, hear this truth as we dive into this passage. After years of wild living, whether in your mind or online or in your life or in your social circles, there is one shared experience between you and others in this situation beyond sinful living. It is the word pain. Beneath all of shadow living, there is always a deep thirst, a terrible realization that after you've experienced it all, maybe this is all there is. And if this is all there is and there is nothing else, things go quickly bad. I'd never heard of a man named George Sanders until this week. He was one of the leading men of Hollywood in his age. He got to marry Zsa Zsa Gabor and Benita Hume. I didn't know that. I didn't know that this man was a great actor of his time and involved in Hollywood. I also did not know that this man graduated from Cambridge University. He was a brilliant mathematician, supposedly good-looking, involved with lots of women. He had money. He had social abilities. He had mental abilities. And yet, as one wrote, In his life of darkness, it was marred with two things, dissatisfaction and despair. He ended up committing suicide, taking his life. And as one person wrote, don't forget, this is a man that had many women, had smarts, promoted education, and was famous. I found his suicide note this week. His suicide note is small and scary. It reads like this, I'm committing suicide because I am bored. I feel I've lived long enough, and I leave you now in your sweet little cesspool, and I wish you all luck. One of the greatest rulers of his day, in another time in the 8th century, was a man in southern Spain. 
And if you read his journals, it's interesting because this man was a good ruler in most part. And he begins to reflect on life after living a life of pain and life. And this is what he wrote. He says, I have now resigned, I reigned for 50 years in victory and peace. Beloved by my subjects, dreaded by my enemies, and respected by my allies. Riches and honor, power and pleasure have bid on my weighted call. Nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting for my felicity. Then he writes this, in my situation, I have decided to diligently number the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen on my lot. In other words, he says, after 50 plus years of reigning and ruling, I decided to count how many days I was genuinely happy. He says, I can find 14. And then he wrote these words, O man, place not your confidence in this present world. Solomon, the great scholar, the great king, the great God follower, wrote this in Ecclesiastes 5.10. Whoever loves money, or you fill in the blank, never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. The shared experience of those who are deeply religious is they end up nowhere. And those who live in wild living end up in great pain. John intentionally writing this chooses now this next story. He moves us from Nicodemus, the greatest example of being religious, the greatest example of being a good moralist, the the greatest example of being good and yet blind, not understanding his deep sinful self-reliance. And now he moves us to the opposite. He chooses in his culture and in his story to introduce us to another woman, another woman uh, that many of us know. A sexual uh, woman who's involved with all sorts of men. A Samaritan woman. There's no grander difference in this culture between Nicodemus and this woman. As we will both see though, they both have the same need. Because they both have the same problem. Spiritual hiddenness and self-reliance. It says in John chapter 4 verse 1 these words. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining, uh, gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although it was the fact that Jesus was not baptizing, it was his disciples. And when the Lord, that's Jesus, heard of this, he left Judah and Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Verse 4 makes things get interesting. And now he had to go through Samaria. It's not true. He did not have to go through Samaria. Now, is it saying that the Bible is lying? No, no. This is beginning to show us where God's heart is. See, God so loved the world. He's coming to meet everyone, the deeply religious and the ones absolutely not. The necessity here lays in the fact that this was a divine appointment from the Father. Jesus was called by heaven to actually not just go into a culture, but to meet one person this day. This is not about Jesus needing to go through Samaria because it's quicker to get there from Jerusalem to Galilee. This is a sovereign act of God. Jews hated Samaritans. To Jews, Samaritans were idolaters, half-breeds, ethnically polluted, religiously confused, and morally disgraced. Jews would not want to be with them, especially the Pharisees like Nicodemus. They were so hated by the Jews that they would travel around Samaria, even though it's faster to go from Galilee to Jerusalem through Samaria. The question we always need to ask is, well, where did the hate come from? Some of you know. And a deeper question, well, where did the Samaritans come from? Well, generations earlier, after the death of Solomon, the people of God had a civil war. They formed into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. All the prophets, if you read the Old Testament, almost all the prophets are speaking to these two nations. 
begging them to get right with God, begging them to come back as a people, begging Judah and Israel to come back and meet the living God. When the north, that's Israel, got more and more involved in sexual practices God had said no to and then started worshiping other gods, God continually, his heart broken like a divorced person trying to win back the spouse that keeps having an affair, comes back and says, please, I love you. And the north kept saying, no, we don't want you. And he said, please, I bet, no. And he said, so I must bring judgment so you wake up. He sends the Assyrians. The Assyrians take over Israel and basically destroy it. In that period of great great pain and then over time something takes place the assyrians start intermarrying with those in the north and they produce a new race the samaritans and out of this came a mutation of the jewish faith these half jews still worshiped the god called yahweh but they also involved other practices and also what they did is they refused to use any of the books of the old testament except the first five Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Their story begins, and it begins with God and ends with Moses and nothing more. If you know your Old Testament, when Nehemiah and Ezra come back from Babylon and begin to rebuild the temple in the south, the Samaritans are so offended by this, they set up their own temple in the north on a place called Mount Gerizim. There are such deep gulfs of separation here. Language now, religion, national animosity, stranger turned to enemy, war, and now there's two versions of worshiping the true living God. So here's the question, who's right? Well, the Jews viewed this whole race as compromised. They hated them. And, and by the way, the feeling was very mutual. And yet Jesus needs to go where no good Jewish man would. Why? Because God so loves what? The world. He came to a town in verse 5 in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground where Jacob had given it to his son Joseph. The first hearers of this would be shocked by this. We just read it as geography. But this is historic significance. This land was purchased by a man named Jacob. Jacob, he had a name change later, you may know it. He later got called, uh, oh right, Israel. Uh, he had 12 sons. His 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel that make up the nation of God's people. And now these ancestors are divided and not only that, Sychar is the place where Joseph himself was buried after the exodus. It says in verse 6 that Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It's the sixth hour, John reminds us. First thing to observe is Jesus is tired. Here, we have been talking about Jesus being God so far, so we might believe. But Jesus is also fully human. Can you imagine Jesus is tired for a few reasons? Demons, healing, teaching, disciples. Oh, if Peter asks me that question again, I'm going to. Confrontation, mental and physical weirdness. And oh, by the way, it's the sixth hour. Sometime between 12 and 3. It's the hottest part of the day in the middle of Israel. Now, in the sweltering heat, the unexpected happens. Suddenly, as the story goes, a woman comes alone to get water. Now, there's two major details, you may know them, you may not, that are significant. They begin to fill in the painting of brokenness that Jesus has now come to make right. First, women traveled in groups. Nothing is new under the sun. They go to the washroom together. Still, I don't get it. Women travel in groups in this culture, not just to socialize, but to share in the labor of getting water. Second, the best time to carry water, and by the way, the amount of water an average woman would carry in Samaria, this time on their head, was five gallons, 40 pounds of water. You're all weak, and so am I. 
And they'd always do this before sundown or sunrise. This is serious and difficult work, and you'd never do it in the middle of the day, and never alone. Well, and think about it, by this time, you'd already need water to wash, to cook, to clean, and bathe. All of this gives us social clues that everything is not right here. It says in verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? I love John's little abbreviations. His disciples have gone into town to buy food. Yeah, they've gone to McDonald's or Starbucks. They're out. Okay. This is an uncomfortable situation. Put yourself there. There's a man and a woman alone. You ever driven by a bus stop and there's a man and a woman alone? How close do they stand together? They don't. This is uncomfortable. It's more uncomfortable because he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. And now this guy actually not only speaks to her, but requests water. And the idea would be that she'd have to use one of her utensils for him to drink because he doesn't have a cup. And here's the problem. If a Jew touches something touched by a Samaritan, the Jew becomes actually spiritually unclean before God. And oh, by the way, this is a woman. And it's not just that she's a woman, but she's a woman deeply in pain. She's very suspicious of men. As we're about to find out, she has used men, and she has been used by many men, and she thought they were good, and they probably weren't. And oh, by the way, she's afraid. She's alone with a strange man, far from a city, and if anything goes really bad, physically or sexually, she's got no help. So Jesus looks at her and says, could I have a cup of water? With all that background, and all that animosity, and all that ethnic hatred, listen to her response. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Notice she includes that. Why would you ask me for a drink? Side note, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Thank you, John. She answers very defensively, excuse me? Okay, here's the background. I hate you, and actually, I don't only just hate you, I hate everything that you are. Don't you dare ask me for a drink. Don't even talk to me. I don't like you. I don't like your people. I don't like you as a man. I don't like what you stand for. I don't like your faith. You make me sick. And oh, I'm a woman. And I thought you were a proper Jewish guy. What's your problem? Why are you coming near me? You're not even supposed to talk to a woman without her husband being present. Why would you ever even look me in the eyes? Because of course she's saying, what are you up to? His response is most telling. It's unexpected. It's what I'd call classic Jesus. Jesus answers her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Okay, this is not where she thought this was going to go. There's no racial slur. There's no yelling, woman, get me water. There's no provocative move. Suddenly, he says, you have no clue who's in front of you. And and actually, I do want some water. But actually, I'm here to give you something. And and if you know what it was, you'd be quite excited. This is like you have the Powerball ticket in the States and you don't know. Worth $90 million. This is like someone is coming to the tree I described and putting up the ladder and saying, oh, by the way, I'm an expert in kites. I'm going to detangle you. I'm going to rebuild you, just so you know. He says, I've come to give you living water. In the Old Testament, living water was always used to talk about salvation or God himself. God himself is actually called a fountain of life or a spring of living water. Jesus later in John 7, we'll get there in a few weeks, talks about this. He says these words, if anyone's thirsty, we sang about it this morning as Nikki led us. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Old Testament has said, streams of living water will flow from within him or her. By this he meant the Spirit of God. 
I have come to give you living water, he says. Now, confusion could be a good word to use at this moment, at least for her. Just like last week with Nicodemus, either she really does not understand what he is saying, or she starts to understand because she actually knows religious language very well, and she doesn't like where it's going, so she becomes literal on purpose. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Uh, Where are you going to get this living water from? You need to read that not nicely, by the way. That's written bitterly. This is sarcastic, this is ironic, this is caustic. Don't misunderstand this woman. She may have had a tough life, but she has not lost her wit. Let me translate this for teenage language. Hello, loser. That's the essence of this. Uh, I've got something, and you can't have it. I've actually got the utensils, and I'm not giving them, with, uh, giving them to you. So since I'm not sharing, who do you think you are, and how are you going to even go down in the well and get this? I mean, look at verse, as it keeps going, in verse 12, she brings up the biggest bomb she can. She brings up the most hatred, state, the hateful statement she can. Are you greater than my father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as his sons and his flocks and his herds? See, sarcastically, Full of anger, she says, you think you're better than me, right? Because you're a Jew. You think that you're more important, that you're more authentic than we are. She throws out this grenade, trying to bring up all the old blood feuds. This, This is like Northern Ireland. This is like Rwanda. This is like, this is like a conversation between a Nazi and a Jew. This is a conversation between an Al-Qaeda terrorist and a U.S. soldier. You need to understand the deep hatred. I'm not a, this is true. This is like a Palestinian today sitting down with a soldier in the Jewish army and trying to talk. There is so much distrust, so much pain, so many cycles of violence. It's interesting. Jesus, of course, he's claiming to be more important than Jacob oh, and Abraham and Isaac. What does Jesus do? I love it. He doesn't give in to the temptation of the old pattern of violence and distrust. See, he's actually come to overcome all of that, right? Instead, Jesus chooses to appeal not to his ethnicity or his pride, but actually her need. See, sin has destroyed her life, emotionally, mentally, sexually, spiritually. He is here to, say, she, he is here to see her change. Listen to this. Listen closely if you're a Christian. He has not come to win another battle in a never-ending war that's about ethnic pride. He's here about salvation. Christians, we should never, ever, ever put our pride or our national worldview above someone getting saved. Don't you agree? That is the heartbeat of our movement. Jesus has come to overcome everything the world cannot. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Don't you love that? Just sort of bypasses the racial slur. But whoever drinks the water I give him or her will will never be thirsty. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. Listen, he said, you get this. You come here once or twice a day, you drink from this well, this is obvious, and you're going to have to come back and get water tomorrow. It doesn't last, but what I offer you, what I offer you is living water. It, It lasts, it's permanent, it actually becomes a stream, a spring, eternal life right in you. This spring, my spirit will lead you to physical resurrection, forgiveness, and and hope, and, oh, side note, restored dignity. This spring will well up, which means it will leap, jump, 
dance. This fountain will be bottomless. This fountain is full of motion, and this fountain is vertical. It's going to connect you somewhere. See, those who trust in me, Jesus says, will never need to look outside again for satisfaction because when I move in and I really move in, you'll never be thirsty again. Hmm, not what she was expecting again. Either again, she does not understand or she's starting to deliberately avoid where he keeps going. She thinks, can you hear her? Every time I throw something at him, somehow he gets around it and he comes closer to me. Many people, you know, tend to deal with physical issues first rather than spiritual ones because they're easier to deal with and we can medicate our soul issues with food or things. And so look what she says in verse 15. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty again and, and have to keep coming here to draw water. I think she's missing it now on purpose, personally. Jesus is not selling, by the way, the new product that's going to make her domestic life amazing. This isn't like this is the best fridge ever, don't worry. See, this is heaven coming to earth. This isn't William's Sonoma. So as he comes and he begins to talk, her reaction is so interesting. You, you notice it so far? Jesus has been kind. She's been defensive. He appeals to her situation. She responds with, well, racism and sarcasm. Jesus now points to the deepness of her need and, and the thing that will deal with sin and history and pain, and she just chooses to ignore and deny it. Don't have too much judgment on her. Because I think all of us with her background would probably do the same. And, and remember, we know who's sitting in front of her and she doesn't. She doesn't realize that the one sitting in front of her, this 30-year-old Jewish guy, is the one who wrestled with Jacob. He's actually the one who said, Jacob, now your name is Israel. I wonder if at this moment she's starting to go, okay, this is, this is weird. Or maybe he's cry crazy. Maybe he's eccentric. Either way, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to humor him until I can get out of here. Well, that moment, everything changes. What Jesus chooses to do next will not only change her world, but will change the town she lives in and actually has changed our world because we're sitting in Ajax and virtually online talking about our story 2,000 years later. Ever thought of that? Jesus stops and looks at her using the spiritual gift of words of knowledge, plunges the conversation into the place of unexpected pain, shame, and guilt in darkness. He calls her on her wild living. He told her, go. Go call your husband and come back. At that moment, time, I'm sure, froze for her. Her life was a miserable chain of unfulfilled relationships. Something went wrong every single time. It was one guy, then two, then three, then four, then five. The fires always began and then they cooled. Many people had charmed her and left her broken more and more times. And Jesus, of course, will not be like the other men, but she doesn't know that. She wears the emotional armor some of you wear today and some of you know others wear. The emotional armor of a woman who's been beaten down by shame, of being that woman, of being the one that everyone talks about, the one used, the one in the small town, you know, that's her, right? Why do you think she came alone to the well? She came alone because she didn't want to face community, though she desperately, like all of us, wants it. She didn't want to deal with the word. She didn't want to deal with the stares of all the other women she went to high school with, right? She didn't want to deal with all those who were better than her. How do I get out of this, I'm sure she wondered. 
Her answer seems the best and quickest, and I've done it, and so have you. She says, I'm going to tell him some of the truth, and that will get me out of this. So she says, rightly, I have no husband. Huh. You can imagine her at this moment getting the water, starting to pack up, to get out of here. It's time to go. A little weird man. Okay, let's get out. Jesus, though, has come to meet her. I want you to hear that. Jesus has come to meet her. He came all the way from heaven to meet this woman at this moment. He will not let her. He will not. He refuses to let this woman run from his love, this pure, untainted love. But the only way this love will be embraced is for her to be exposed. Hear this. Like I've preached before, Jesus never humiliates anyone. But he will come and humble us terribly so we can get healed. Jesus said to her in response, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is actually you've had, oh right, five. And the man you're with right now isn't even your husband. I I love this last, what you say is quite true. Six guys. Jesus knows all of this, of course. He's God under the power of the Spirit with gifts. Every action, every step, he knows what's about to unfold. He knows our life of sin. She's stunned. I mean, I think you would be too. Stunned, exposed. All the words she'd been called her whole life, slut and whore, the cluster of the mean girls all the time, the expectations of men, all the thoughts of her regret. Why did I give up to him? Why didn't I settle with this guy? There's no way out. I'm such a sinner. I'm so dirty. I've hurt others. I've hurt myself. I've hurt God. I've, I've just, I'm, I'm hurt. Still, this guy is in front of me. I, I need to change the subject. He just keeps coming back at me time and time. I need, I need to do something right now. I, I can't handle this anymore. The, the, the thought flashes through her mind. Okay, I know how to deal with this guy. This guy seems religious and theological. Okay, I'm going to ask him one of the big questions of life so I can either confuse him or get him off topic. i got to get out of here. Sir, she says, I see that you're a prophet. Uh, Nicodemus said the same thing. Sir, it's obvious you're from God. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. So she, she throws another grenade. I'm going to bring up the most controversial theological thing that I can. Delay is her hope. Her question is, where is it appropriate to worship a God that's everywhere? Have you thought about that? Jesus neither indulges her or ignores her. He says, well, believe me, woman. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship something you don't actually know, and and we worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, watch this, and if you're disconnecting, focus back in. I love that, first of all, Jesus says this. I didn't catch it until I preached it the first time. Jesus says there is a timing, there's a time coming when you, not the world, you. Jesus is already telling her that she's going to become a follower. God has come to pursue her, and he's saying, I'm sure with a smile, there's a a time coming when you, with such a broken life, are going to get to worship God personally. Isn't that great? You. But then he says it quickly and moves on and says, listen, you're both wrong. The Jews have got it wrong, and the Samaritans have got it wrong. It's not about where you're going to worship, but if you actually know the God you think you're worshiping. 
and, and he says, look, no offense, this isn't a racial slur. Salvation actually is from the Jews because I'm a Jew and I'm the Messiah. I'm about to tell you that. And holy history has always come most directly from God's people, Abraham to Jacob, which you support, but then from Isaac to Moses, fine. But then, oh, all the things happened after Moses to Malachi. You ignored that, and actually it's important. Salvation comes from us. You don't adequately know God anymore because you've mixed him up with other gods, and you only refuse to look at the, you only use the first five books of the Bible. There's a time coming, he says, and it's now come. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. I love what Chuck Swindoll said about this. He said, look, what Jesus is saying to this very brilliant woman is this. The earthly location of worship is a secondary concern in heaven. The, ne the temple merely acts as a place to focus our attention in a distracting world. Ever thought of that? The object of worship is primary in heaven. It's secondary in Samaria. They're involved in all sorts of idolatry at this moment. But here's the real thing. The quality of worship is the true measure of devotion to God. Even as Jesus, he writes, is speaking to the Samaritan woman, don't forget, back in Jerusalem, because of the corruption of the religious leaders, they're polluting the temple with their money-changing schemes. Therefore, the temple in Jerusalem and here in Mount Gerizim are both wrong. The Lord wants genuine, spirit-empowered worship you've got to know the god you're worshiping and then he needs to move into your life so you can worship him jesus goes beyond the where to the how true worship is not about jerusalem or the mount that you're talking about it's always through the spirit of god and he was hinting that there is a new movement coming a new race being formed a third way called the christian movement where it doesn't matter if you're a jew or a samaritan or a greek or a barbarian woman man slave or free for we are all given one spirit to drink because there's an equal footing at the cross because jesus has decided to come and give us a way back and he's beginning to hint to this woman that she's, he is supposed to hate. That God's love has come to reverse the world order. All the barriers are now down. She finally engages around verse 25. And she says, I, I know that there's a Messiah coming. He's the Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. There's one thing that you Jews and us Samaritans, we agree on. There's someone coming from heaven, and man, we may not fully understand who he is, but this, the great revelator, as they called him, he's going to make everything clear. This is 4,000 years, by the way, of holy history and waiting. Jesus, I'm sure smiling at this moment, said, yeah, that's me. I'm sorry? Yeah, I I'm the one who's speaking, yeah, me. It's interesting, if you read this in Greek, Jesus says, I am he. Do you know why he says that? Because what's the name of God that met Moses at the burning bush? What's his name? I am. And the, the greatest prophet to the Samaritans was Moses. And Jesus looks at this broken woman and says, just so you know, not only am I Messiah, but I'm the one who was at the burning bush, just so you know. What's the result? 
when you're in your connect groups this week or in a few weeks, you can talk about what happens with the disciples. But verse 39 is when it really comes home. It says, many Samaritans from the town, here's our key word for the year, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. A humiliated woman would not run back to town and say, he told me everything about myself. Let me expose myself to the town again because she was not humiliated. She was humbled and then healed and she runs back into town and she says to all her haters and all those who gossip and all those who hated her on Facebook, you've got to hear my story. There's this guy, he's 30, he's the Messiah, he told me about all my sin and yet when he did it, he healed me. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay for two days. Why wouldn't you? And because of his words, many more became believers. See, Jesus last week and this week through his scriptures says to you that are good, you, are that, you that are religious, you, are, you who are the best Canadians among us, you who stand in lines and say sorry about everything, <laughs> you that are the opposite, broken, to you filled with so much pain, to you that are living or have lived open, sinful lives, God says to both groups, don't you understand you're in the same boat? Some of you today are this woman. Some of you online, listening wherever you are, this is you. And as God comes to people that have lived openly hostile lives and sinful lives, it's interesting. This is how you will act towards God. You will be defensive. You will deny what God is trying to say to you. You will try to change the subject. You will try to bring up as much as you can, especially religious controversy or philosophy, to avoid the real issue that you need help. You will try to delay God's work in your life because you know, even though, hear this closely, you hate your pain and you hate your sin, you're used to it, so you live in it. And God, I'm going to tell you this morning, is going to keep coming for you anyway. You can delay and deny and you can try bringing up everything, but God's love is bigger than all the obstacles you can throw at him. Jesus comes, as he did 2,000 years ago at this moment in this church, in this time, to bring you forgiveness and life and restored dignity and radical life change. But it's always on his terms and not on yours. You think your past is too large for God to meet you? Or he doesn't really want to know you because, you know, you've done too many ugly things? No. His love is bigger than all that. That's why he died on the cross. Your, your sin is never large enough to make him not love you. He came because you were in trouble. He is eternal love. Some of you on the opposite end say, oh no, I blame God. This is God's fault. But the truth is, if you're honest and you sit back, you know that your own decisions and the decisions of others in their own free will have made you what you are, not God. The great painful cost of choice is choice. The great painful cost of choice is freedom. And when freedom is tainted with sin, you always end up hurting yourself and others. Never raise the middle finger to heaven and say, you did this. Look around and say, we did this. And God still comes into our brokenness and he says, I know you've been broken. I know you've been sinned against and you've sinned against others. And I know you want a fresh start and it's impossible. But oh, by the way, I'm in the impossible business. I've come to give you life and life in the full. And I've come to make you like the Samaritan woman who can run right back into the faces of those who mocked her and say, I've been changed. And oh, by the way, your mockers may be changed too. It says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess 
that Jesus is Lord and you believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you embrace who Jesus really claims to be and you say, I'll follow you, then all this stuff, this, this begins to happen. The spring of life is given into you. But here's the great painful conversation we need to have as we end. So this is when everyone needs to lean in. The great battle for you who are living these open lives or these secret lives is trust. The more broken you are, the less trust-filled you become. And so trusting yourself to a human being is one thing. Trusting yourself to the living God of heaven and earth even becomes more difficult. But the question is, will you be vulnerable enough to God so he can set you free? Will you let Jesus sit in front of you, tell you about all your history so he can free you? C.S. Lewis, thinking about this, wrote these very, very good words. He says, to love it all is to be vulnerable. He says, love anything at all, and your heart will certainly be wrung, possibly broken. But if you want to keep your heart intact, he wrote, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with little hobbies and little luxuries. In other words, fill your life with entertainment. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up and save it in that casket or coffin in something called selfishness. But in that casket, that safe, dark, motionless, airless casket, hear me, your heart will change. It will not be broken true, but it will become unbreakable and irredeemable. Here's when it gets really, really interesting. The alternative to tragedy or the risk of love is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can perfectly be safe from the dangers of love is hell. Let it sink in. The only place in all of time and space where you can live in your pain and never get hurt again, especially by love, especially by the love of God, is hell. Hell in part now and future. What is hell eternal? Hell eternal is choosing not to live in relationship with the one who loves you. It's eternal loneliness. God steps in to these situations of deep religiosity and steps into these, pla these places of deep, deep, overt sin because they're both sinful and says there is no freedom. Don't you understand? By being deeply religious and thinking that's going to get you into heaven, you'll end up into a tree banged up and broken because you're relying on you. And you who are living overtly materialistic or sexual or influential based lives and there's nothing else to life except this, you're going to end up in the tree. Why? Because you keep relying on what? You. Jesus comes in and says, I am in the kite business. I've come to bring a ladder to take you out of the tree to rebuild you so you can fly again. I am love. There is nothing bigger, more evil. There's nothing dark enough that can stop me. I have come to give you life and life in the full. My promise to you is I will give you a spring of living water. You will never thirst again. You will never be alone again. You will be restored. Your history will never be used again. You can't handle the burden of religion and you cannot handle the burden of overt sin. Come and find love again. For you who are Christians as I end, I want to say this. This is the gospel we hold. This is what we must take to our friends and our families and our neighbors. Religion will bring death and so will overt sinful living. Go tell them there's a third option because they don't think there is. Can I say that again? Most people in Durham don't think there's a third option. 
They think that we're religious here, deeply religious, trying to prove ourselves to God. So they look at that, and they look at fun, and they say fun hurts, but I'll probably go that direction unless I'm really scared of a really mean God, so I'll go this direction. Is that the truth? No. Go and tell Durham. Go tell your neighbors and your friends. Moralism doesn't bring life, and nor does this over here. Go tell them there's a third way, and his name is Jesus, and he will show up in their lives and expose them, humble them, and then free them. Our message is offensive because it says that everyone's in the same boat. Go tell them there's a different boat to go into. Please. Because they think there's only two options and we know there's a third. For some of you sitting here today and you're like, I am that woman. Do you want to run from love or embrace it? If you want to run towards it, pray this prayer and we'll see what happens as Jesus shows up. Let's pray this way. Jesus, at this moment, some of us here online are realizing that's just me. I mean, I am this woman. I mean, if, if you knew my thought life, if you know how I've used money and sex and power, I mean, it's me. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty bad. So, Jesus, if you are the same as you were in this passage, like if you really are the same, because I don't trust very much anymore, but if you are, then I want to talk to you right now. Um, yeah, I, I admit all the things I've done to you in detail. I admit it. Uh, I'm sorry. I never thought I'd end up here, actually. I'd ask you to forgive me, and I'd ask you to help me turn from a life of sin. I need you to get me out of the tree, because uh, no one else can. I'd ask you, Jesus, to forgive me. Um, I pray that you'd do like you did with this woman. You, uh, you'd tell me the truth, but you wouldn't, you know, take me down. Uh, forgive me for my sin. I believe that you are who you say you are, that you're, you're God. Uh, I believe you died, you came and died and rose again for my sin. And uh, forgive me, forgive me. And would you make my life new? Would you give me this, this water that never runs out? Would you give me eternal life? And would you give me purpose in this life? I need heaven's help. Yeah, I want to I wanna be a follower of you. Yeah, just come seal the deal. I, I ask this for the first time, really, in Jesus' name. Yeah, amen. Lord, for some people that just prayed that, our prayer as people a little bit down along the road is seal what's just been done. Don't let it be stolen. And then our other prayer is that as we prepare to respond to you in worship and communion, Lord, is this. Lord, give us courage. We were praying about this in our connect group last night, my connect group. God, give us courage as a church to tell people about Jesus. Give us real courage to tell people that are deeply religious that there's no life there in the end. Help us to do it like Jesus did, really, really kindly and grace-filled. And help us to step into people's lives that are 
the opposite of that and are just pretty messy and all over the place. And and I pray that this church would tell them that there's good news. It doesn't have to be this way anymore. And Holy Spirit, we pray you'd go ahead of us and prepare the ground in each of these lives so there'd be change. And uh, Lord, there's some names in our heart and our heads right now of people as I've been preaching. We're like, oh, that's me or that's that person. Yeah, meet them, Lord. And uh, last prayer is this. We're really thankful that you did this for us. There's a lot of us sitting in this room and online who we were either Nicodemus or this woman. And you decided to have a lot of mercy on us. So we're thankful this day. And as we come to take communion, we just want to say thanks that you'd set us free. And uh, our prayer always is that you'd keep uh, working this out in our life so it's more real, more authentic. And that as we walk longer, we wouldn't get it sidetracked. So, Lord, uh, your mercy on those seeking and those not seeking and those following. In the name of the Father who calls, the Son who dies and rises and prays for us, and the Spirit who possesses us and gives us the ability to be like Jesus. And all of God's people said, yeah, amen. Why don't you stand and, uh, like I just said, we're going to respond with communion. We may call it the Lord's Supper. Maybe Eucharist is the background you come from. This is a moment of response, and uh, for those who are going to serve it, you can come forward. I just want to say this. Communion is open for any person who is a follower of Jesus. It is the symbol of his death and resurrection. It is the symbol of forgiveness. It is the symbol of life. It is the symbol that one day we will eat with Jesus as we take this now, and we'll never take communion again. It says in Scripture that if you are a Christian, take a moment to reflect on your own heart to make sure you've not sinned against yourself, others, his church, the world, and ask forgiveness before you take it. If you're not a Christian yet, please don't take this uh, because you have not embraced the one it represents. But as I say every time, this is a great place to meet Jesus and say, I embrace you. But as we worship, as you come forward, as we do take, uh, come forward to communion today, take a moment to pray for people that you want one day to be at these tables. Have you ever done that before? Take a moment to thank Jesus for what he's done. And like I always say at Come Forward Communion, this is when we give above and beyond in generosity towards our care fund so we can continue to help widow and orphan and there are many uh, varied ways in our community and outside. And so give generously today, not because it's Christmas, but because we're Christians all year round, right? So just come and that's just going to be in the red box and we can give above and beyond so we can help meeting the physical and emotional and spiritual needs of people. So Jesus, bless these elements. Meet us at these tables. Continue to work out your stuff in our life. And we're thankful for who you are and what you're doing. In Jesus' name. And everyone said loudly, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to know more about C4, get connected to the life of the church, or give to this ministry, visit our website, www.c4church.com.